Uh, This week, a letter arrived uh, to the church, strangely addressed. Um, uh, (laughs) In my handwriting, surprisingly. Uh, And it says, says, for the most important person in the world. We haven't opened it yet, um, because we weren't sure. Um, Do you remember how that goes? For the most important person in the world? You. You. Oh, me. Then as soon as you say the you, you realise, well, which you does it refer to? Was it to you, or you, or you? And, and who remembers the advertising campaign that this is perhaps an echo to? Something like 20 years. I look back on, it might even be 30 years ago. I think National Mutual, it's hard to find online. CGE. CGE. CGU. Personal finance. Do I get that right? Insurance. Because you're the most important person in the world. All of that stuff. Well, anyway, <laughs> we might start again for the recording. <laughs> But here's the interesting thing about that advertising campaign. It had us believing this idea that uh, you are the most important person in the world. National campaign. And so either get your finances in right or get your insurance right and then life will be right because you matter most in this whole world. The most important person in the entire world is you. And if there was a letter address that said for the most important person in the world... Well, you're meant to open it up. You're meant to act on that kind of understanding. But then when you stop and think about it for the the minute, the most important person in the entire world is just you, at the exclusion of the person sitting next to you, around you, or anyone else that you've ever met. In fact, of the 7.7 billion people that occupy this planet currently, the most important person in the world, you. And you think, well, that's absurd. How incredibly arrogant. And yet, relatively speaking, perhaps it works because we actually think it's true. As it relates to you, are you not the most important person in your world? That you think about you and you look at you and... uh, You think about you a lot and you wash and dress and feed you and you make plans for you and... uh, and you reminisce about you and, and if I asked you to name all the things that you love, how long would it take you to name yourself? It's not a new idea. And so would it be fair to say that you love you? And if that's the case, then I've got a letter for you. For the most important person in the world. For you. And so let's open it up and see what it has to say. And what does it say? It reads, are you sober? Seriously? Are you out of your mind? Are you so drunk with your self-interest that you think you are the most important person in the world? Are you you sober? Really? Is that the way that it goes? And if that is the way you think, then here comes the text from Scripture. It says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Now, of course, as you come to think about that, we realise the reality of the things that we've read this morning and the idea of humility that this is getting at. We say, yes, that's great and that's what we want. But actually, we, by and large, for a lot of the time, are very much fixated with the belief that we really are the most important person in the world, or at least in our world. 
And then it comes to the point where you must then think about whether or not you are thinking rightly about yourself. So are you sober in your thinking of yourself? How are you to think of yourself? Well, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. So says Paul, Romans 12, verse 3, and that carries on immediately from where we were last week. And last week we saw that the only logical and sensible thing that a Christian can do with their life, in fact, with this embodied life, is to turn it over to the Lord and that that is true worship. That it's all about presenting our entire lives to God and inviting God to use us. This embodied existence that we have, that he's given us, to live in the light of what he's done for us. Such that in everything you do, remember last week, verses 1 and 2 of Romans 12, present your body as a living sacrifice. That this is your logical response to God's mercy. Do everything in view of what he has done for you. And in view of that, that ought to change the way you live your life and see yourself. Be a living sacrifice. And then we saw that there were two things that were connected to that. Step one, stop conforming to the world. A world that really does love itself. Stop acting like everyone else around you and reject the pattern of this world. And so live a distinctly different pattern that deals with honesty and generosity, that's about loving your enemy and forgiving others when you have been injured, about returning good for evil and showing kindness to those who are ungrateful and selfish and that this idea connects with this not being conformed to the pattern of this world but transformed, different and distinct. And so step two follows on, this transformation happens as a renewing of our mind in the way that we think And so from verse 3 onwards, where we arrived this morning, in through chapter 12 and beyond, Paul is going to talk about what it means to practice having your thinking changed and your minds renewed, what it is to live with a sober mind and an understanding. And so if we've entitled this series, of Romans, A New Way of Living, we see here that it all begins with a new way of thinking that that's critical in our responses to what it means to be a living sacrifice is to have a new way of thinking. And the first thing to think about your new way of thinking is your thoughts about yourself. That's what needs to be rewired, apparently. And so when you come to see the first step in this renewed way of thinking, this renewed mind, it is then a call to humility. A sober-mindedness that comes to us when we live at a time and in a world that it's addicted to the self and to individuality. And of course, that's been true since Genesis 3. And so Paul says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. And so as we come to God's word this morning, our theme is humility. And why does Paul start with this rewiring of our thinking? 
And I want to suggest that it's because it's the logical place for Paul to begin. That the Christian life that Paul is describing to us, that he's talked about back up in verse 1, is the life that responds to the mercy of God. And without humility, you'll never respond to the mercy of God. You'll never even see the need for it. Humility is necessary because if your life is full of pride and full of of self-admiration, you'll never acknowledge that you're in need of undeserved mercy that God offers. That if God has sent his son to die and to take from us what we deserve, punishment and death, and lay it upon his son, and you say, I'm fine, I don't need any of that, then you will never have a view of God's mercy. If you live without humility, you'll never long for it. Further, this life is a life that's lived in step and in imitation with our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. And when you think about that for only a moment, you realise that one of the key characteristics of the one that we follow is his humility. The one who did not think of himself more highly than he ought, but humbled himself. And this afternoon you might want to spend time in Philippians 2 and reflect upon that humiliation of Jesus. The one who's co-equal with God the Father doesn't grasp at equality, but humbles himself. And if that's the model, and if that's the pattern, then of course humility is the starting point then for us as we respond to him. And of course there's actually another reason why you've got to start with humility, and it's because arrogance and self-importance and the love for others can never live in a single human heart. And Paul is determined that followers of Jesus know that they do not live for themselves. You stop and think about it. (laughs) Love for God and love for neighbour at the heart of what it means to be a living sacrifice. Yet if I live for myself and I'm all about the you, the me, the I, then I'll never see that I'm actually meant to be loving of God and loving of others. And so you see how fundamental the idea of humility is in the renewing of our minds. See, Perhaps we'll um, see the virtue of humility when you see it in contrast. And actually, it's interesting to talk about the virtue of humility. Do you think it's a virtue? The first century didn't. The idea of humility was weakness. And it's why this distinctive Christ-like characteristic was so important in the foundational building blocks of the church and of Christ's message, because it was so countercultural in the first century. To be humble, to be self-effacing, was to be weak. And of course, it's no more a virtue in our day. In fact, the virtue of pride was once seen as valued and still is. And so then, as you think about virtue, think about it more clearly in contrast as you think about pride, the pride in you. I came across this thought this week. That pride is the ultimate and the bottom vice of the human soul. C.S. Lewis says, Impurity and anger and greed and hatred and all the rest are mere flea bites in comparison to pride. Pride made the devil the devil. And it's pride that lies beneath all other vices. This ugly lie 
that we tell ourselves about our own worth and virtue and importance. And how much we deserve from God and others. And about how evil it must be for others to ignore us or belittle us or fail to appreciate us or fail to serve us. Pride is so fundamental and so pervasive. We're so used to it that we usually almost entirely fail to recognise how much of it we have and how constantly we are in its grip. Pride. Is that something that gnaws at you? Something that you're aware of? And so we live life like it's a ladder of comparison. That my worth and my identity and my emotional stability is at the mercy of where I think I fit on the ladder. Above or below all other comers. And this passion that we feel for comparison about ourselves as favourably or not to others is nothing less than a fixation upon ourselves. And where we said that true worship is meant to be living sacrifices, in fact, self-worship is really the thing that we live out, that we embody. And so as Paul begins this section, he invites us to be living sacrifices and says, your humility will be at the key of that. Augustine famously said that we become like a person curved in on oneself. Like Narcissus, gripped with our self-importance and our self-love. And yet, human beings, we are made to look out from ourselves and up from ourselves to God and to others. And yet we've been twisted so much so that we almost look entirely in and on ourselves. We found something we could worship and we found it in the mirror. And know this, that followers of Jesus don't, just because of their new birth and their faith in Christ, suddenly lose their pride. Paul has written 11 chapters about the nature of sin and salvation. And he says, in response to what God has done in his mercy, transform your minds, and at the heart of the thing you need to be active in is understanding the place of pride in your life and the virtue of humility. To take a long and sober look And understand and do not think of yourself more highly or less highly than you should. Because there's something else that's worth seeing. That there's a kind of humility that seems suspiciously like its opposite. Where you can talk about your brokenness and your self-deprecation. And you can become admired for your apparent humility your honest approach at humilities and others begin to congratulate you. And all of a sudden you take pride in your great humility that you've mastered. C.S. Lewis in his Screwtape Letters addresses this. It's a book written from the perspective of a senior tempter, a senior devil speaking to a junior tempter. And that senior tempter Wormwood is worried that Wormwood doesn't know how to deal with Uh, a Christian who's showing signs of true humility. And so he writes to his young nephew and says this. Oh, this is very bad. Your patient has become humble. 
Have you drawn his attention to this fact? All virtues are less formidable to us once the man is aware that he has them. But this is especially true of humility. Catch him at the moment when he is really poor in spirit and snuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection, by golly, I am being very humble. And almost immediately, pride. Pride at his own humility will appear. Now, if he awakens to the danger and tries to smother this new form of pride, make him proud at his attempt, and so on through many stages as you please. And see, that's the problem, isn't it? That we can think think of ourselves so humble and so on the road that we take pride in our great achievements. And so here comes the warning. We need to renew our minds because we have a mind that is innately addicted to self. And we have a culture that has cultivated pride as a virtue. The love of self and the self-protection and the looking after oneself. And yet God's word tells us how not to think in this regard. And says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Rather, how should you think? Well, think of yourself with sober judgment. In accordance with the faith as God has distributed to each of you. Now, as you hear that, well, what does that mean? As you you read it, I think we tend to read it and think, right, I've got to think of myself in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each different person in that kind of way. And it made me think of this idea of perhaps we think that the distribution is is different. So to some, the measure of faith is, is, is that much. But to others, it's a little bit more. And to others still, it's a whole lot more. And, you, you know, so the, according to the different, the varied measures, if God has given this much to you and, and this much to the person beside, well, according to that measure, then live in accordance with that. But that's actually not what Paul's saying. He's actually saying that God has measured out faith. And it's not a different measurement. It's the, it's the standard. It's that if that's the meter, then that's the meter. And every single one of you has received the standard, the measure of faith. This faith that speaks about what God has done. In view of God's mercy, you have received this life and this belief. And you are trusting in, in this. This thing that you believe in is the same for every believer in Christ. And according to the standard, the measure that's been given to you. See yourself in the light of that. Oh no, don't judge yourself according to what others have and in the comparison to others. No, it's the same measure that everyone measures themselves against. In accordance with the faith that God has given to you. Different versions, the ESV says, according to the measure of faith that God has given to us. View yourself in the light of that. I don't don't think this is work. I was trying to do this in my office earlier this morning. But if you could get the measure and you could... Maybe it will work. All the builders in the room are freaking out right now. That was a good looking tape, right? I know, it is good. I've done this several times. That'll do. If you could, all look to the one measure that was given. If you could see yourself in the light of how God sees you, in the light of that, according to that, think of yourself. And that understanding, 
is meant to transform you. According to the measure of faith distributed to everyone, it's not subjective, it's objective. That God so loved you and he so valued you and he made you and he cares for you and he built you. But he built you and made you and recognised you that you're a sinner. You're a worm. But the worm's turned. You have innate value because of what God has done. But don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. So, so therefore, cultivate humility in the light of that. And that ought to kill pride in us. It's exactly what the hymn writer says. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain, all the things that I've done, I count but loss. And I pour contempt on all my pride. I see myself correctly in sober judgment in light of the cross of the faith that God has distributed to each of us. So therefore, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, except in the death of Christ my God. But all the vain things that charm me most, I'm to sacrifice them to his blood. I'm to see myself distinctly differently. I'm to recognise that in a world that wants to live for itself, I've been called to humility. Where there might be a view that live for the individual, Jesus invites us to live for him. And of course he goes on to say, knowing that to be the truth then, it's a call to unity in a community of diversity. See, there's another reason why humility is at the forefront of this new way of thinking. And it follows right on in the text that we're looking at in Romans chapter 12 and verse 4 following. It says, For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, though many, form one, so we, sorry, uh, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. And, And his reasoning goes like this. You've been called into a community and all of you have diverse different gifts. But no one of you has all the gifts. And and what you have been given has been given to you by God. Don't take credit for that. Recognise the great blessing that you've received. That means that if there is something that you do well and some contribution that you can make, it's because God's at work in you. And not because of some innate capacity or talent that you have. It's not in view of your contribution, of his great gift, his charismata that he's poured out to you. And the purpose of this variety of gifts given to the church is so that the body of Christ might be able to function as a unity. Each one doing his or her own part, each one contributing to the whole. So so he wants to go on immediately and talk about the gifts that were given to us, his followers, by our Heavenly Father to be at work in us through his Holy Spirit, not so that you can feel great about yourself, but so that you might serve God and bless others. So, So you read through the list that comes, and it's not an exhaustive list. You go elsewhere in Paul's writing in the New Testament, you realize there's a great variety of ways that God is equipping his body to function. And you realise several things. That the gift isn't yours and you can't take credit for it. 
It was meant for the blessing of the whole body, not to increase your status or to work in comparison with others. But everyone has been given a gift or gifts so that they may be used to bless. And it's only when our gifts are used in the service of God for the blessing of the body that God is actually pleased. And so as soon as you begin to use the gifts that God's given for the purpose for which he's given them, you're not meant to take pride in that and think yourself more important. Or, But very often, gifts are a source of pride. And Paul writes a whole section in his letter to the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians, about the place of pride in the use of gifts. But it must not be like that. On Thursday night, I went to Pitwater High School uh, for the... Pitwater High School annual musical presentation night, music presentation night. Uh, I didn't know that's what I was going to. I thought I was going to a one-hour uh, performance of some of the bands that two of my, two, two of my daughters were in. Uh, I had to drop them off at 6 o'clock. Our performance was to start at 6.30, and I'm thinking that we'll be in the car and back heading home by 7.30. I was wrong. I was well wrong. Um, Pitwater High School musical presentation night involves nine performing ensembles. And each of the nine ensembles perform, they then receive awards, and before and after each of them, they've got to pack up and set up and do all that kind of stuff that they do. And then there are the speeches that are peppered through the night. It was almost a three-hour event. Just before nine o'clock, we were back in the car driving away, uh, and I wasn't expecting that. Um, Sure wasn't what I had longed for or hoped for, wasn't what I was hoping to give my Thursday night entirely over to. Uh, I thought we'd be home, and we, and we didn't eat before we went. It was at 6 o'clock, all right? We're going to eat when we get home at 7.30. And so by 9 o'clock, I'm, I'm tired and I'm hangry. Um, <laughs> but let me say, and others, Sam's here, and testimony to this, it was fantastic. The, the performance quality, the, it, was, it was a great night. Those bands are astonishing. Stage band, strings ensembles, or or the orchestra, the concert band, the vocal ensemble, the rest. Amazing. It was a a terrific night. I I actually thoroughly enjoyed it, except for being hungry and way longer and wanting to be somewhere else. But it was terrific, right? (laughs) Now, if you ask me, what did I enjoy the most? I've been to these things before, particularly primary school ones. This is easy to answer. What did I enjoy the most? Hands down, the best part of the night was the fact that there was no recorder ensemble. (laughs) It's true. Hands down, best part. I understand why kids need to be introduced to recorder. They should never play in concert, though. Why? They're all playing the same instrument. They're all playing the same thing, and it is just absolute total picture of uniformity. It is awful. Uh, and even when it's done well, it's, it's not as good as it could be. But you see the body, the image that Paul goes on to talk about here. He says it's not like that. In fact, there's incredible diversity. And because of the diversity, there becomes challenge. You've got to work out who's playing loud, who's playing soft, who does which, which part is the part that you're going to contribute. Of course, there's something else that's intriguing that sometimes you'll go along and see and engage in. And it's this one, where there's just one person playing everything. 14 different instrumentations on, attached to one person and look at them go. But the one-man band where everything is doing their own thing alone, the picture of individualism is not what Paul is talking about. Instead, it is the picture of the orchestra. Or Paul's image is the picture of a body, isn't it? One body, many members. And now each of the members don't all have the same function. So in Christ, we though we are many, form one body under one conductor. 
and each one belongs to the other. And when that happens, as each, play, as each person plays their part, that picture of interdependence, that unity and that diversity, I heard it on Thursday night, it's a place for potential wonderful harmony and discord, right? Sometimes it gets badly wrong. But that's Paul's point. This is what we need to work at. And this is why humility is so important, because not only is it going to reflect our nature in Christ, not is it at the heart of human sin when we live with pride, but for the use of our gifts, it has to be done in accordance with humility. We all have, as he says, different gifts. And so this call comes to unity, because we're meant to function in a community of diversity, and that's meant to be beautiful, according to the grace that's been given to each of us. And so God has graced his church and he lists through six different things. As I said before, not an exhaustive list. But what's interesting about this list is the way that it's all patterned together. And it says, if your gift is this, then do that with it. Which tells you that it's not passive. It's not something you own for yourself. It's to be divested. So if it's prophesying, If it's taking the revelation of God and passing on God's words to others, then do it in accordance with your faith. Now, that's not that measuring faith going in and out saying, well, I've only got a little bit or I'm going to make it up to the thing that I believe. It's saying, to the faith that was handed down to you, according to the faith, proclaim him and be consistent with that and do it. If it's serving, if it's working on Christ's behalf, living for others, then do that as an act of service. Just like Jesus in Mark 10.45 came not to serve, to be served, but to serve. So if that's what it is, then serve. And it's a very general term. Do that. If it's teaching, if it's passing on truth, then teach. If encouraging, exhorting, or inviting Christians to live the truth of the gospel, then give encouragement to others. If it's giving, then give generously. And that has this idea of in simplicity. To give without the idea of there being ulterior motives. To give straightforwardly. And if it's to lead, then do it diligently. And if it's to show mercy, then do that. It's interesting, this is the only time in the New Testament where humans are equated with this idea of mercy. That we're to take the mercy that we have received and show it in loving care to others. In the visiting of those who are unwell and the providing for the poor and the love and care of the elderly or disabled or whatever it might be to show mercy. How are you to do that? Well, with a look to the other before yourself, not grudgingly, but cheerfully. And then you could keep going on through this list again and again and again and realizing how has God given you? If he's given you this, then deploy it. And yet so often... We live entirely for ourselves. We live not distinctly different from the pattern of this world. And so in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, we read these words, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the world and its desires are passing away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. Are you sober-minded? 
Do you see yourself in the light of God's mercy and the cross? In view of the faith entrusted to us. We're going to close now and sing. And the last verse of the song we're going to sing ought to be our prayer this morning. So will you pray it with me? With every breath, I long to follow Jesus. For he has said that he will bring me home. And day by day, I know that he will renew me until I stand with joy before the throne. To this I hold. My hope is only Jesus. All the glory evermore to him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but Christ in me. Amen.